from Seattle, Washington. I'm Zach Jabal, and this is Next Round, a VinePair podcast conversation. We're bringing you these conversations between our regular podcast episodes in order to examine how we move forward as a drinks business during the COVID-19 crisis. Today, I'm talking with Esther Mobley once again. She's the wine critic at the San Francisco Chronicle. Esther, you're, I think, our most frequent guest now on the podcast. Congratulations. What an honor. Wow. I mean, unfortunately, as we were discussing a moment ago, I feel like we mostly just have you on when things are going badly uh, in California wine country. So I, I wish it was, uh, we could, maybe one of these days we'll have you on for just a purely celebratory conversation. But uh, but for now, um, let's start with just the basics. We're recording this on Thursday, October 8th in the afternoon. What's the kind of current state of fires, especially in sort of the Napa and Sonoma area? The main fire in the Napa Sonoma, well, the only fire right now in the Napa Sonoma area is the glass fire. It started on September 27th and, um, it's it's uh, still active, um, still very much a, a threat to people, to buildings, but um, it's at 66% containment. It has burned so far over 67,000 acres. It's destroyed over 1,500 buildings. Um, so uh, it it's really wreaked havoc. Um, the thing everyone in the Bay Area right now is is just praying for is rain and Earlier in the week, it looked like we were going to get a lot of rain that was going to really probably help the firefighting efforts. Now it looks like we're going to get a little, but not as much as we'd hoped. Um, Next week's going to be hotter, uh, it looks like. So um, everyone's just kind of watching the weather conditions because the the fire still could go in a number of different directions from where it is now. And so, you know, those of us who were not in in and around the Bay Area uh, and and sort of wine country in Northern California, you know, all we kind of had to go on was was scattered, you know, social media accounts, yours and others, you know, about what was going on. But but now that things are a little bit more, obviously, the fire is not extinguished and there's still danger. But but things I think are maybe a little bit more calm. Can you you know you mentioned some numbers, but but can we talk a little bit about more specifics? Like what what did we lose? What was in, from the wine industry perspective? Obviously, you know many people who who are connected to the industry or not at all who live in in that area were lost homes, um, lost lost lives, unfortunately. But but from the perspective of the wine industry, what was the damage? So the glass fire is undoubtedly the most destructive fire Napa Valley's ever seen, um, just in general, but but also for the wine industry. Um, we now know that of we've we've confirmed I've confirmed twenty six winery or vineyard properties that have uh, had damaged or destroyed structures. So not all of those are are completely gone. Um, in some cases, those are an owner's home, um, but uh, it's a pretty pretty striking number. I mean, in the Atlas Fire and well, excuse me, in in all the fires in twenty seventeen that hit Napa County and Sonoma County's tubs and nuns and pocket, there were uh, several all at once. Um, in Napa County, we only knew of six wineries that had damage. So this is really um, a striking figure, and uh, it's funny. I mean, I I don't know if folks remember in twenty seventeen on the first night of the Atlas Fire, Signorello Estate, which is in Napa on the Silverado Trail, was really um, the first kind of iconic image uh, to be seen. This grand winery on this, you know, the most storied avenue in Napa up totally engulfed in flames. And this year, uh, it was it was eerie. There was almost kind of a, a similar parallel. The first night of the fire, a Sunday night, Chateau Boswell, just a few miles up the Silverado Trail, was seen in flames too. A stone building, which you don't think often will burn, um, 
And uh, it really went from there. A, a number of wineries in kind of clustered around there in Calistoga on the Silverado Trail saw damage. Um, Howell Mountain, uh, Burgess Cellars, one that just a few weeks earlier had been purchased in this really high profile deal um, from the Burgess family by uh, Galen Lawrence Jr., the Arkansas ag billionaire who's buying up Napa properties like Heights. Um, and then it jumped over the valley from the east side to the west side. Um, it it kind of landed at Sterling Vineyards, one of Napa's most famous estates. It it didn't really do huge destruction there, but there was some damage. It hopped over to Highway 29. It decimated this farmhouse. It doesn't really look like a farmhouse. It's a big stone building at Castel de Amorosa. And then really the the most destructive um, period of the fire was when it started creeping up Spring Mountain, um, a really beautiful wine growing district in the western hills of Napa, the Mayacamas Range. And it seems like Spring Mountain hasn't seen wildfires since um, the 1870s. So Given what we're learning about wildfire, um, it it probably had really a lot of flammable material that was um, going to be pretty vulnerable. And a number of estates along Spring Mountain, like Barrens, like Sherwin, like Kane, um, lost most or all of their winery, in some cases, entire vintages worth. Um, but but I, I think it's important to note, too, 26 is a, is a high number of wineries or vineyard properties to have been damaged. Um, but it's really a small fraction of what the wine industry is there. I mean, there's over 500 wineries in Napa County, I think. There's, you know, when you look at Sonoma too. So um, it's many wineries were fine. You would see wineries right next to ones that had burned that were totally unscathed. I mean, the these wildfires can move in kind of illogical paths. So it's it's definitely important to note that just because uh, you know, a a winery in one area burned doesn't mean that all the wineries in that area burned. So I have a, a question that's specifically about your your job when because unfortunately you are getting to be experienced at tracking these fires what is that period like for you what are you doing when when you know these wildfires are burning are you because i mean you're you're i i think you know you're based in the bay do you drive up you know up to napa do you try and get as close as you can like what how do you cover these that's a great question. Thanks for asking. Um, so yes, it's a mix of doing reporting from my computer in San Francisco over the phone and going and driving around myself. Um, press can get beyond evacuation points uh, most of the time. We The police will wave us through the police barricades and um, they won't do that when it's it's really dangerous. In fact, last week at one point, I was trying to get up Spring Mountain Road to inspect some wineries up there. And the, that, I mean, it's one thing when you're on Highway 29 or the Silverado Trail where they're pretty open, you're not up a little winding mountain road, but um, 
sometimes you're you're driving up these roads and you're like, well, if a tree fell, if an electrical line fell, I might not have another way out. Um, so anyway, I I was denied access to Spring Mountain Road because a police officer said trees were still falling, and I said, you know what, that's just fine. I'm going to turn <laughs> turn my car around. Um, but it's a mix. So uh, you know, I don't cover these wildfires alone. I have a you know our newsroom of 200 journalists where in a in a crisis like this we have dozens of reporters and photographers on the scene so for instance the first day well the 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 glass fire broke out on early on a sunday and it didn't really start um wreaking havoc on wineries until that night which is when chateau boswell went up in flames Monday morning, I was kind of paired up with a colleague of mine, um, Chase, who drove up there. And I was on my computer texting people wildly, uh, looking at maps, trying to understand, you know, where the fire was. And with Chase and a photographer, I was kind of directing them, oh, can you go here? Can you see what happened there? Um connecting them with winery owners. And what's crucial at this point is most of the winery owners aren't there. They're, they had to evacuate. They don't know what happened. Some people stay behind and defy evacuation orders. Uh, Cal Fired, our <laughs> fire agency, does not um, condone that. And so, and they can't get past the police barricade. So we're often in the position of telling them what happened to their property, especially in these early couple of days when few people have been back there and they're relying on our our word and our photos um, to learn what happened. So, I mean, it's a bit of a messy process initially because, uh, you know, you're calling the winery owners to be like, how's your winery? They're like, I don't know. Then you're calling my, you know, my colleague and I'm like, okay, go check out Hourglass, see what happened there. You know, we think, we know the fire went through there. Did it do it, destroy any buildings? And then he goes and sees it and sees, okay, this building's gone, but I don't know what building that was. Was that the winery? Was that the tasting room? Was that someone's home? So then we're calling the owner of Hourglass, Jeff Smith, and being like, okay, here's what we're seeing. What is this? And it's, I mean, we're, re- we're really careful then about, because this is what happens in these events, there's so much misinformation and people will say a winery burned and it wasn't the winery. It was some other building. Um, There was really, really kind of egregious misreporting by some other outlets. Everyone was saying that Fela had burned. Everyone everyone was saying that Rombauer had burned. Both were fine. Um, The fires came to both of those properties. They're right by Chateau Boswell there. Fire came to both of those properties, but didn't burn any structures. And on Tuesday morning, I drove up and um, it's funny, our, uh, this just shows you how popular and beloved Ron Bauer's Chardonnays are because I'm driving up and I get a call from my editor saying, hey, the most, or I don't know if it was the most, but one of the most searched Google terms in California right now is Rombauer burning. And I was like, we think it didn't burn. That's, that was what we learned yesterday. And she was like, can you just go, can you go see? So I drive up to Rombauer and sure enough, the winemaker, Richie Allen is on the crush pad doing some (laughs) (laughs) and he's fine, but it was just like, um, we actually decided to run a whole separate story saying Rombauer is fine just because there was such a demand for that that piece of information and also to dispel other rumors. I mean, we have to be really careful about this stuff. Um, So anyway, but it's just a mix of all that. We're now at the point where 
pretty much everyone has gone back, even if they did evacuate. And um, it's I've I've I haven't gone up this week at all. I've I've just been reporting from San Francisco, where I can um, get a lot more writing easily done than from than when I'm in my car typing filing a story by texting it to my editor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. I have a, a, a one more question on this and then and then maybe we can talk a little bit about some some of some else uh, some of the other things that are going on. Um how do you and I mean I guess this is tough but like I think of this sometimes as as like you know you're you're almost like breaking the news to someone that that a family member has died if there's been real damage. You know, how do you how do you do that gently? And also, you know, do you have to do you feel like, you know, it's kind of your obligation to to communicate if you can with the winery owner before it's, you know, on on the Chronicles website or on Twitter or whatever? How do you kind of balance that? Gosh, I don't know. I I'm not sure I I'm not sure I do do it the right way. It's it's so hard and to be honest, it's really an emotional um, exhaustion that I feel while covering this stuff. And, um, it, it hurts to experience it, to think about it. It's, I cry a lot, <laughs> especially when it's a place that I have a connection to and, and have, um, really have spent time at before and know the people. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I I don't know. I'm sure in every case it's a little bit different how we approach it. But yeah, in cases where we haven't talked to the, we're talking to the someone from the winery in every case, um, at least to verify like what was this that burned. A lot of times we want to know was your wine in there? Like did is your wine gone? What does that mean? Um, we're not just you know, so we, we kind of have to talk to them just for our own fact checking purposes. And it's tough. I, I mean, people have different reactions. I have to say everyone has been really kind, um, this time, <laughs> but, uh, part of, you know, sometimes people are, are juggling these kind of PR concerns. They are worried everyone's going to think they're out of business. And, um, in 2017, a winery in Napa, I'll, I won't, name it, but, um, a, a employee of the winery was just screaming at me over the phone. You know, you can't print this that, and anyway, their whole, so it's, it's, it's hard. And, um, I, I mean, I feel like I, you know, I don't have training in this. So if anyone has tips for me, I'm, I'm all yours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think necessarily in the wine industry, you think you're going to have to kind of do grief counseling for people, but, but uh, maybe it's part of the job these days. Um, let's talk a little bit about more broadly this year in in California's wine industry and and maybe particularly in Napa and Sonoma. So, I mean, one of the big conversations attached to these fires beyond the sort of immediate damage that a fire can cause, namely, you know, destroying stuff, is smoke taint. And, and we're at a point now where I would imagine that, you know, basically um, – well, I, let's. Why don't you? Why don't you just share with me what you've heard from from wineries about what they think about this vintage, how they're dealing with potential smoke taint, like what what is the what is the state of that in in Northern California right now? So the smoke taint conversation for 2020 begins in August when we had this series of lightning ignited fires throughout California. Really, I mean, it was astounding. We had thousands of lightning strikes um all at once and that's not typical for our 
our area for our, our climate. So um, that's when we saw these enormous complex fires breaking out all at once in really disparate parts of California. And of course, um, you, it, it, it was bound to contain many wine regions. So there was an enormous fire around the Santa Cruz Mountains, which is an important wine growing region, an enormous fire in eastern Napa, an enormous fire around Healdsburg, um, Dry Creek Valley, Russian River Valley. Um, there were fires in Mendocino County. I mean, it's just like, take your pick. It was everywhere. So um, the the fact that those fires were so widespread and not contained to just one little area, and then coupled with the fact that this was August, like this is early in the season for grapes. Most of our, our big fires in wine country in the last few years have come much later in the season. I mean, people were estimating in Napa and Sonoma counties that when the fires hit in 2017, 90 to 95% of the grapes had been picked. So, okay, smoke at that point just isn't, isn't a major industry-wide, region-wide concern. Um, this year, it's a completely different thing. Before we even get to the glass fire, I mean, by the end of August, this was already going to be a game-changing thing because it was a potentially affecting wine grapes in Monterey, in the Santa Lucia Highlands, I mean, as well as up in Mendocino, and almost nothing had been picked yet. So um, the result of that was that almost no one could get their uh, test results for smoke taint in a useful time frame. ETS, the lab that basically does all the testing here, is was showing delays of over a month at a certain point. Um, and we won't even get into the fact that those tests may be unreliable on their own because there's so little, really so little information about smoke taint available. And it's a whole other conversation for another time. And people were sending their samples to Australia and to Canada and just trying to kind of um, get a sense of what was happening. And for a lot of people, it already wasn't looking good. And even before the glass fire hit, a number of winemakers had shared with me that they were planning to make no wine or almost no wine, or in some cases, no red wine in 2020. And um, the number of people who are sharing that sort of information has only um, increased in the last two weeks. I, I think the the um, idiom to use would be that it was the nail in the coffin. I mean, if you had any any doubt. So, you know, Philippe Melka told the winemaker who, who consults for a lot of wineries in Napa and Sonoma, he told Bloomberg that he thinks 80% of Napa Cabernet won't be made this year. I spoke with another industry source this morning, because I'm, I'm writing about this, um, who thinks that's high. But, you know, it, it's, it's way too soon to know for now. Um, these decisions are still being made in real time. And in addition, there's going to be a lot of grapes that get picked that then kind of the decision is going to get made later on about whether to ultimately like sell it as wine um, under its original purpose. So, you know, if we want to come up with a percentage, we're not going to be able to do that right now. It's going to be a little ways down the road, but um, the impact is significant. I I think that's clear. Um, it's scary. I, I mean, there's a lot we could say about it. It's coming off of a couple of really ample vintages. So, um, you know, a lot of wineries probably have more wine from um, 2018 and 2019 than would be typical. And they're going to hope to weather it through. We have this whole oversupply grape glut situation, and it actually may help balance out the overall 
wine grape market throughout California. Um, but it's sad. And a lot of these small growers are in a really tough position, especially if they don't have crop insurance. A lot of small wineries are in a tough position. They're just not going to have any wine to sell this year. And um, that said, there's there's going to be wine made this year. I don't mean, and you know, it's really varies region by region, grape variety by grape variety. But um, I, you know, I don't mean to say if you, if you see a bottle of 2020 wine on the shelf in a couple of years, it, you know, don't assume it's a problem, but I think it's a big, um, we're, we're going to, we're seeing a big loss. And, and just to, for, I, I don't want to get too deep into the smoke taint conversation, but, but for listeners who might not be as familiar, one of the big problems uh, in assessing the risk of smoke taint is it's not really apparent in the wine until well after fermentation. So it's not, I mean, you can test for it as, as Esther mentioned, the tests are kind of, of questionable utility, but the big problem is it's not like you can, you know, crush the grape and tell, oh yes, this is smoke tainted. So I think a lot of wineries are, are faced with this challenge of, well, do we start making the wine like it's okay? And then end up with a product that is, you know, unsellable, and have put all the time and capital into getting it to that point, or do we just cut our losses now? I mean, that's that's my sense. Is that what you get to? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely some cases where you can perceive the smoke in the grapes themselves. Then, uh, you know, many of the compounds get volatilized during fermentation. So that's why fermentation is important. Some of them then absolutely kind of um, reveal themselves much later on down the road. People think enzymes in your mouth Um, free up some of these bound compounds. But part of the issue, we won't get too far into this, is A, um, we probably don't know all of the compounds that are contributing to this. So while the the labs can test for a handful of them, about eight of them, um, there are probably others that exist that we we, we don't even know to test for. B, um, a lot of these compounds, especially the two main ones, guaiacol and 4-methylguaiacol, they occur naturally in wine grapes. So it's like you don't actually, if, if you get a number back and you're like, well, what's that number mean? Because there was some number that existed in, you know, in a, in the grape's ideal state. And um, for instance, the, the ETS recommends that people don't even bother submitting Syrah grapes or, or wine for smoke taint samples because Syrah naturally has relatively high levels of guaiacol. And if you get a test back, you're not going to know, like, is it just Syrah or is it smoky Syrah? Um, the, what needs to happen is um, we need to establish a kind of database of baselines. We need to know what is a normal level of these compounds in Sonoma County Syrah or even just North Coast Syrah. And then you can um, compare test results against that. Australia has a similar type of database, but um, we just need to start doing that. I mean, it, it, takes time, takes years really to get something good, but um, people just don't have those baselines right now. Okay. So obviously these fires are, have been you know hugely damaging. And of course they're coming on top of uh, a pandemic, which has not done favors to especially, you know, parts of the California wine industry that are, are I mean, they're all to some extent tourism dependent in a sense, but obviously places like Napa and Sonoma are more famously tourism dependent than than certain other parts of of the state um and setting aside kind of the the general pandemic for the time being like is there a concern that i think i know there was concern in 2017 that that people would not come visit because they were i guess afraid of the fires even long after they had been extinguished 
what is the, I mean, whether it's from wineries or from the hospitality industry that exists to sort of um, support and, 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 you know, kind of capture some of that tourism, you know, and obviously some of the damage that was done was done to those kinds of um, establishments as well. Like, how are people looking at moving forward, you know, uh, with, with the sort of tourism industry that's attached to these wine regions? Well, for a story I was working on, I happened to talk earlier this week to Lindsay Gallagher, who's the president of Visit Napa Valley, which is the tourism board there. And I was asking about 2017. So it sounds like in 2017, um, this is just Napa, um, recovered kind of pretty quickly from the the 2017 fires tourism-wise. She said that by December of 2017, so that's three months after uh, the fires, hotel occupancy had was up 7% over the previous year's same period. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I think some people have a kind of short memory for these things. There have been people in Napa Valley, like at tasting rooms this whole time. I mean, I think if you had planned a trip, like you don't just stay in your hotel room once you're there, right? People are going out and about. People have been out and about in the smoky air. It's kind of astounding, but, um, there are people, uh, Lindsay also mentioned that, um, you know, COVID obviously certainly in the early months of the shutdown was just a huge blow for tourism, which is the second largest industry in Napa after wine. But, um, they're around their hotel occupancy right now is around 50%. So, you know, that's not great for them, but that's not 0%. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot at stake here. If if a place like Napa or Sonoma were over time to become kind of less of a an attractive tourist destination, that would be a huge shift to these economies, to the jobs there, to the kind of way these these places feel. Um, I mean, right now, the Chronicle, we're running a lot of stories along the lines of like, are, is everyone leaving California? Have people just had enough? And um, a, a couple of my colleagues had a great article this week about especially residents of Santa Rosa, which is the biggest city in Sonoma County, and they've just been hammered by fire over the last few years. I mean, it's awful. And yeah, I can imagine homeowners there are just like, I'm not going to deal with this anymore. So, um, you know, we're definitely seeing some form of that just from residents, but uh, the but tourism is a big it's a big part of who these regions are and how how people earn their money. And then to come back to the wineries specifically for a minute here, for for the the more sort of um, badly affected wineries, like do and again you don't have to give specifics unless you care to, but do most of these wineries have some form of insurance? Is rebuilding going to be an option, or are they, you know, screwed for lack of a better word? The wineries that that have been burned or damaged in Napa, if if we look at where they are, these are these are um, these are high end neighborhoods in Napa. These are wealthy um, areas for the most part. Land costs a lot. These are wineries producing relatively expensive wine. That's not to say everyone's a billionaire who's who owns these wineries. And there's a lot of multi generational, long time family owned properties that have been affected by this. And um, I, you know, I think things are tough for them. The insurance question is interesting. I don't really know that the full answer to it. One, um, one vintner on Spring Mountain, who's, who's, who's wine brand is pretty new. She's just about to release her first vintage this year. She's only had it for a few years. She said that um, 
fire insurance, they quoted her $120,000 a year as her premium for fire insurance. So that's something that, uh, you know, a lot of folks just couldn't deal with. And this is for a winery rebuilding their building due to fire. The question of crop insurance is a whole other thing, which applies, you know, largely the, well, the, the purpose we're considering here is for grape growers whose fruit is unable to be sold to wineries due to smoke taint reasons. And um, I actually, I had some interesting conversations about that today. I'm also writing about that, but um, rates of, of having crop insurance, I've been told by industry experts are relatively low. Um, the federal government does subsidize it to some degree. It's part of the farm bill. And I, I mean, I think, gosh, if the last few years haven't been a wake up call, I think it's going to become much more important. And in fact, a lot of wineries may start requiring growers whose fruit they buy to have crop insurance because it, I mean, it's like, it's not good for the wineries either if these growers are thrown into total financial catastrophe and the wineries may be on the hook for things. And it's a, it's a complicated issue. Um, there may be federal money coming. There's disaster relief aid that has come for, um, people who have, who have somehow, um, been put in a precarious position due to wildfire before Congressman Mike Thompson's office has told me he's working on that. So um, we'll see what happens. But yeah, I, I mean, how do you fix this problem? It's, you know, it's a combination of wildfire being a natural part of our environment and uh, man-made climate change. We know those two things. We know that somehow the way we've settled these areas, the wildland, urban interface, whatever you want to call it, um, have created new problems, but that also there's problems that, you know, uh, are, are much deeper. And anyway, I, gosh, I, I don't even want to go any further because, um, I'm certainly not the ultimate expert, but, um, this is a, this is a moment, you know, for the wine industry is a small part of it, but this is a moment for the whole West coast, certainly for you and where you live also. Um, and just for us to kind of reexamine how we live and the, the places we live, um, what we can do to prevent these catastrophic losses. Um, and the wine industry, I, you know, it can't prevent wildfire, uh, but there have to be ways we come up with, they come up with, for um, mitigating the, the huge, huge consequences of it for people. Well, Esther, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Uh, you know, for those of you who aren't already uh, following Esther on Twitter, she's an incredible resource, not just for crises like fires, but just in general thoughts on on wine. And um, you can certainly read her at the San Francisco Chronicle. You can subscribe to her newsletter. Uh, now I should have had its name up. What is it, Esther? Drinking with Esther. And you can find it at sfchronicle.com slash newsletters. It's free. It's totally free. Yes, it's a great read. And uh, again, thank you so much, Esther. Really appreciate it. And uh, like I said, we will, I, you and I will talk about California wine in a much more positive, <laughs> uplifting fashion one of these days, I promise. Well, I, I hope so. There's a lot of good things going on here too. And thanks so much for having me on, Zach. I always enjoy it. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and hosted by Zach Jabal, 
Eric Ducey, and me, Adam Teeter. Our engineer is Nick Patry and Keith Beavers. I'd also like to give a special shout out to my Vinepair co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the Vinepair team for their support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again right here next week.